0: Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to the Human Nutrition and Lifestyle Podcast. I've got a very exciting guest for you today, Mr. Benjamin Bickman, PhD. And I first heard of Ben by reading his book, Why We Get Sick. And it's a great title that draws you in. What yeah. I'll do is I'll ask Ben to introduce himself uh, so he can
1: learn where he's coming from. And then we'll see what his book's all about. So welcome, Ben. Oh, Matthew, thanks so much. Thanks for reaching out and thanks for the invitation. Yeah, the book uh, was certainly intended to be a little provocative, um, but also uh, it's a little unfortunate because I'd wanted to call the book, uh, you know, basically why insulin resistance matters. But I knew no one would care. You know, people see the word insulin and they just think it's only relevant to diabetics, and so I had to be a little heavy-handed about it. But I, I'm I'm a research scientist and professor. And my focus is, um, well, I'm the director of the metabolism research lab and my focus is human metabolism. And particularly the relevance of the hormone insulin in in causing or exacerbating chronic diseases, all these chronic diseases that we're all afraid of, heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, infertility, hypertension, and more, um, they have some, uh, they're, they're to varying degrees, a consequence of chronically elevated insulin. And so that's my focus as a scientist, and it was something I, a topic I go into at book length in the book. So just
0: give us a bit of an overview then as to what actually is insulin. And there's terms banded about all over the place nowadays about insulin resistance and insulin sensitivity. So although it's a a very wide subject to talk about, give us a little bit of an overview of what all that is.
1: Yeah, yeah, you bet. It's a great place to start. So insulin itself is a little hormone that is made from the pancreas and everyone makes it. It's in our blood flowing all the time. And that's a good thing. It's a necessary hormone for survival. The the inability to make insulin is a disease called type one diabetes. And because insulin is so essential, the therapy for type one diabetes is to take insulin. And that is certainly when it is warranted. Uh, So Insulin's main action or the classic action is to lower glucose. Um, we eat a, a, a meal that has starches or sugars in it, glucose will start to climb. We, we don't want the glucose to stay too high for too long. That's unhealthy. So insulin will come in to save the day, lowering glucose, and then insulin comes back down, having done part of its job. But the truth is far more um, fascinating because insulin has its hand in countless, countless biochemical processes in every cell in the body. Literally every cell in the body will respond to insulin in some way. And the theme of all of insulin's effects across all these cells is insulin tells cells what to do with energy, to, to store it, to use it, how to store it, what to, how to take it in. But, but that's the theme of it. Uh, insulin tells the cells what to do With the energy that it has. And then insulin resistance, as you bring that up um, very appropriately, and it is appropriate to talk about it because it is, it is arguably the most common health disorder in the world, um, affecting a shocking number of people. And of course, most of these people are undiagnosed and, and that's for reasons we could discuss later, but insulin resistance itself is really this confluence of two disorders that are very related. One is the actual resistance to insulin in some of the body's cells. So some cells in the body stop responding as well to insulin. That's the actual insulin resistance component. But in the body, there's this other component, this other side of the coin that we call insulin resistance, which is the chronically elevated insulin, a state called hyperinsulinemia. And this becomes a problem um, because of all those cells that are still responding to insulin, that are as sensitive to insulin as they ever were, now they are they're excessively stimulated. Their insulin response has turned up too high. So we have this, this tale of two extremes where some cells aren't responding to insulin despite the elevated insulin, and now some cells are responding too much. Because of the elevated insulin, that is insulin resistance. And it's the combination of those two variables that result in insulin resistance really being fundamental to all the chronic diseases I mentioned and more.
0: So, if that's insulin resistance, then what's insulin sensitivity? It seems like mm-hmm. a funny word to say sensitivity when perhaps it's something good.
1: Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, insulin sensitivity is the term just to sort of be a term to to represent the opposite of insulin resistance and that is a state where insulin is doing what it's supposed to do. And it does so at modest levels of insulin. So if you're insulin sensitive, your insulin levels are low. That is a good thing. That is the key to mitigating chronic disease and and even perhaps promoting longevity. In, in certain studies that su- uh, suggest that, uh, that phenomenon. So insulin sensitivity is insulin. All the cells are responding to insulin like they should, and insulin levels themselves are lower um, or, or are low. They're at a healthy low level. So
0: it's basically where we want everybody to be at. We want everybody to be insulin sensitive and not insulin resistant in your first point that you said there. So why is it important then to control insulin for diseases like, let's say Alzheimer's?
1: Yeah, yeah, so Alzheimer's disease has a very unclear etiology. In other words, we don't know exactly how it starts. For years, there has been a focus on plaques forming in the brain and based on um, some rodent evidence um, that appears to not really be um, as big a contributor as we initially thought. Part of the problem with Alzheimer's disease appears to be this issue of compromised glucose uptake into the brain. The brain does rely on glucose. Glucose provides a significant amount of the fuel that the brain uses. And if the brain starts to become insulin resistant, it can't get as much glucose as it used to. And so now you have that energetic gap where the brain has a certain need for energy and now it can't get it from glucose alone and, and then the brain starts to manifest with some disorder you know this perhaps a disorder of cognition and so this it, it's it's something that is called brain glucose hypo hypo meaning uh, deficiency hypometabolism and you can detect this in humans um, that have um, early cognitive decline, or even more so in outright Alzheimer's disease, where where there are, there are technologies that allow us to measure the degree to which the brain is taking in glucose and using that glucose. And we do see that it is significantly blunted in people with either early stage or outright um, Alzheimer's disease. So
0: it's really, really good to hear that potentially there could be a cure for alzheimer's in the future if we focused all our thoughts towards insulin and insulin uh, sensitivity making sure everybody's insulin sensitive then alzheimer's could end up being a thing of the past maybe obviously there's yeah other yeah. factors in there but it would it would severely help towards a lot you hear of the disease especially alzheimer's a lot more um, readily nowadays than you used to do and it is potentially because of the nutrition that that we're consuming and causing insulin
1: um, resistance so yep that's right yep th- so in fact I would add to that a sentiment as much as we've been focusing on therapies to try to reduce brain plaques and that just keeps failing this really does represent a far more promising potential to address the energetic deficiency of uh, the deficiency of the brain either helping the brain, use glucose better by improving its insulin sensitivity and or providing it the other fuel that it can use, uh, namely ketones, although that's a topic uh, for another time, perhaps. Yeah,
0: that's great. And, and there's something else um, that I was really shocked about after I Um, dived into your book was the fact around polycystic ovaries that's becoming a lot more common now in in females and fertility in, in males and females is becoming a lot more common you hear of people struggling to get pregnant now and when you dive into that as well insulin resistance also plays a role there
1: oh very much so yeah it's it is so interesting so these most common forms of infertility in men and women Erectile dysfunction and polycystic ovary syndrome, respectively, are both very in, very intimately connected to insulin and insulin resistance. In the case of the polycystic ovaries, what what m- must happen in in the woman's ovulatory cycle is as we have both ovaries to varying degrees producing follicles that 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 will that are potential eggs, and in order for one follicle to actually pop out of the ovary, and so the actual act of ovulation, the woman must experience a big surge in estrogens. That is a necessary precipitating or preceding event to allow the actual ovulation to occur. If we don't have this big spike of estrogens, we don't have ovulation, then all these follicles just stick around. And then the next month cycle comes around and we have more follicles that come. And so the ovaries get several times the size they should, which of course is very, very uncomfortable or painful for the woman. But again, this is happening because of a lack of an estrogen spike and insulin inhibits that estrogen spike. So it's a little known fact that all estrogens in men and women were once testosterone. And the testosterone in the ovaries and the testes is converted into estrogens. And that happens through the actions of an enzyme called aromatase. But insulin turns off aromatase. It inhibits this conversion from testosterone into the estrogens. So not only does the unfortunate woman not have enough estrogens to ovulate, but now she also has too many too much testosterone or too many androgens. And then she can start to have the consequences of that, namely the acne, the excessive body hair on the face or the arm, but more body coarse hair like like a man has, as well as male pattern baldness, which itself is an action of of androgens. So she starts to have these non-fertility related issues. But once again, that is all derived because of what insulin is doing in in changing the production of sex hormones. Then in the case of the man with erectile dysfunction, it's actually a result of the insulin resistance at his blood vessels, where insulin is one of the hormones that helps blood vessels dilate, which is a necessary process for male fertility. And if those blood vessels become insulin resistant, Now, they don't dilate, and then the man fails to develop an erection, and thus he has now the most common form of male infertility. But that is such an intimate finding. It is so commonly found that there was a manuscript published a few years ago where the title was something like, is erectile dysfunction the earliest manifestation of insulin resistance in men? That's how tightly connected these two disorders are, although they seem completely unrelated.
0: That's brilliant. And it's amazing to find out how many diseases and how many illnesses, if not all of them, are linked to some kind of insulin resistance. So That's right. what sort of signs should we look
1: out for? How
0: can we tell if we are insulin resistant?
1: Yes, yeah, so there are a few that stand out. Um, one of them is just having a larger central fatness. So if you're, if you're waist to hip ratio, is you know around above uh, 0.7 in women or higher than 0. 0.9 in men? That's a red flag. Um, and, and again, that's the waist to hips. And that just if that's higher, if that ratio is higher when you measure the circumference around the biggest part of your you know almost your belly button or the biggest part around around your hips, um, if that ratio is higher than it should be, that just suggests you have more central fat. That's a warning sign. Um, Also, if someone just has elevated blood pressure, if a person has hypertension, that is very usual, very often a result of insulin resistance. Um, If someone has certain skin disorders, um, there are two in particular. One of them is this condition known as skin tags. There's a more technical name for it, but it's where at at skin folds, like typically around the neck, if a person's a little overweight or around the armpits, the person will have these little kind of protrusions, like these little teeny columns of skin. It's not a kind of gentle hill of skin. It's a very abrupt little projection of skin. That's a sign of insulin resistance, and also skin discoloration, not the freckles that I have as a result of my Scotch-Irish background, but rather um, these, these larger patches of darker skin that you would see. Of course, the fairer the complexion the person is, the more obvious you can see these, but the person will just have sections of darker skin patches. Um, not little individual freckles, but patches of darkened skin. And it will feel a little differently too, more velvety. Um, That's a condition called acanthosis nigricans. And once again, it is a manifestation of insulin resistance. And there are a few others like the infertilities we just mentioned, like having a family history of type two diabetes. But if I generally say if a person's a little overweight and they have hypertension, they very, very likely have insulin resistance.
0: So you say about um, people, bigger people in general, perhaps that look on the outside like they're, they're bigger than they should be. You're bordering on towards obese, looking fatter, looking like they're carrying extra weight. But we know in certain people like, let's say, a sumo wrestler, that they can be insulin sensitive and not insulin resistant at all. And on the other end of the scale, there's also those thin people that you see walking around, and you think, "Oh, they must be metabolically healthy. They they must have a decent nutrition. Everything. Their lifestyle must be great." Yet we know t- testing those kind of people, they can come across as
1: insulin resistant as well. So, what's actually going on there? Yeah, that's a gr- those that's a great um, paradox um, to to in, in difference between two different groups of people that really serves well, as an example, to highlight the relevance of the fat cell. So I believe that most instances of insulin resistance, if not all start at the fat cell. And and it's really the difference of a person and whether, how they're storing fat, which I'll elaborate on, but there's generally depending on how the person is storing fat, they will have a, a higher or a lower personal fat threshold. That's a term that was coined a number of years ago, but I think it's very descriptive in this case because it just, it just reflects the fact that due to, largely due to genetics and somewhat due to diet, a person will have fat cells that grow in two different ways. And this is what determines whether they become insulin resistant or not, regardless of the actual amount of fat we see them carrying around. So if as someone is gaining weight, they can gain weight through two different mechanisms in the fat cells. The first mechanism is that the number of fat cells doesn't change. It's capped, but each individual fat cell is getting bigger. That's a process called hypertrophy or a hypertrophic fat growth. And the person, because they're not making more fat cells, when the fat cell starts to get too big, it it just stops. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But those are people who have a limited amount of fat gain. They cannot get to this kind of morbidly obese state or you know, five or 600 pounds, most people could never under any circumstance get that fat. It simply is impossible for them. In contrast, another, the other group of people can get that fat and get fat you know, much more easily. And that's where each individual fat cell starts to get a little bigger, and then it recruits a new fat cell to help carry that fat. And that's a, a process called hyperplasia or the production of new cells. And once again, no individual fat cell ever gets too big. As it gets big, we just pull in new fat cells to help carry that fat burden. That's actually a healthy way of getting fat. And the person has an almost limitless potential to continue to store fat. But because those fat cells continue to store the fat and they're healthy cells, they never get too big. They maintain a very high degree of insulin sensitivity. So, this would be like those, that group of that, that subpopulation of sumo wrestlers who is able to get very fat, because not all sumo wrestlers can, but they, they get very, very fat and they maintain a very high degree of insulin sensitivity. Those are the people who can get massively obese. In contrast, most of us are the former, where our fat cells grow through hypertrophy. As the fat cells have gotten basically to a point of maximum dimensions or maximum size, they start to tell insulin, I can't grow anymore. And so insulin keeps force feeding the fat cell and insulin tries to tell that hypertrophic fat cell to not allow the exit of fat, but the fat cell stops listening. It knows that if it continues to store fat, it will, it will It will become, it will almost literally explode. It just reaches a point that it cannot hold any more fat. And so it becomes resistant to insulin, telling it to stop breaking down fat. And thus it starts breaking down and releasing the fat. So normally insulin will inhibit lipolysis, which is the breakdown of fat. And in the hypertrophic fat cell, now lipolysis is no longer listening to insulin it's just doing it anyway even though insulin's trying to tell it not to and thus the cell has become insulin resistant and depending on the person this may happen at a, at what does at what appears to be a very modest growth of fat cell and this is why someone would look like they're still reasonably lean maybe only very modestly overweight and yet they have in fact become profoundly insulin resistant Whereas another person whose fat cells are growing through hyperplasia, they look very obviously overweight, and yet their insulin sensitivity is fine. Now, that's not to say that they're necessarily healthy, but they would be healthier than you would expect them to be.
0: Yeah, that's great. It's a brilliant way to put it. I like the way you wind it all out there, but I think it's also important to understand that. Majority of people are in the hypertrophic category. That, that, that is, that is that's the kind right. of cell that you will have in your body. I mean, hyperplastic, like say, there's sumo wrestlers and things that are, are in the minimal category. There, there's, there's very less of them kind of people. That's around. right. Um, yep, that's so exactly right. expanding a little bit on fat, then we have two different kinds of fat. We have our subcutaneous white fat, and we also have brown fat. So how do these fats work in, in, in different ways?
1: Yeah, yeah, so white fat versus brown fat is one of the ways that we can distinguish body fat storage on the body. And the differences are really quite stark. White fat is the prototypical fat. When we think about fat that jiggles and we can pinch it, we, and and we, and we, we hate it. That's the, the prototypical fat that's just is fat cells that store energy. They really do just sort of act as this reservoir when we have sufficient calories and insulin is a little up, these fat cells will pull in the energy um, to store for later use. Um, when, we, when insulin is down and when the person's fasting or eating less, now the fat cell is sharing that energy with the body to be used. In contrast, brown adipose tissue, which we have very little of as adults, as we, when we're little babies, we have much more. And as we grow, we tend to get less and less of it. Um, which appears to be unavoidable, but it also, I believe, a, is a consequence of our diet, um, namely the incessant spiking of insulin, which we published a paper a couple of years ago, finding that insulin um, turns down the actions of brown fat. Um, and, and, and specifically, brown fat cells are loaded with mitochondria, um, which actually gives them a brownish color. You know, t- And they look significantly different than the white, yellowish um, color of white fat. And so there's enough mitochondria in the brown fat cells to physically give it a different color. And beyond that, the mitochondria behave very, very differently. Whereas the mitochondria in white fat cells are extremely low rate um, mitochondria. They're doing very, very little. It's it's a very low idle on the engine. Um, And and in contrast, the mitochondria in the brown fat cells, not only are there several orders of magnitude, more mitochondria, but they're also much several times busier. They're much, much more active, you know, 10 to 20 times higher metabolic rate. So now in contrast to the white adipocyte, which is the idling engine, now we're pushing on the accelerator and we're seeing the RPMs really rev up. But interestingly, the brown adipose tissue isn't burning higher energy because there's a high energetic need in the, in the brown fat cells it's doing, it's burning energy just to produce heat, which within the realm of biochemistry is a very wasteful process. You know, we don't want to just be wasting energy, but in this case, it ends up being favorable because of our hypercaloric environment of, of constant eating. Um, and and, you know, at the muscle, the muscle has a high metabolic rate, but it burns what it needs to burn. It's very efficient. The brown fat cells are inefficient. They're burning energy just to burn the energy, not because the fat cell has any particular need. And and this is relevant in in human, um, within the evolution of an individual's life, because as a baby, a baby has so little muscle that if that baby had to rely on shivering in order to maintain heat, the baby wouldn't be able to generate enough shivering to get warm. And so the baby has a significant amount of brown fat, which is why a baby doesn't shiver and they can still be very warm because all that brown fat is making heat for them. And as we grow, we of course develop significantly more muscle mass and now our shivering can really do enough to keep the body warm. And that may be part of the reason why adults tend to have or not tend to, absolutely have less brown fat than they did as as infants. But also, we can manipulate those variables a little bit. Um, Another paper we published from my lab found that you can basically turn white fat to behave a little bit more like brown fat if a person has low insulin and, for example, higher ketones if they're adhering to a low-carbohydrate diet we found that it accelerates the metabolic rate in white fat tissue by about three times. So a pretty, which was a significant um, difference and, and I would argue perhaps pretty meaningful as well.
0: So what, what we really want to focus on in our bodies is having a, a good ratio of brown fat. We don't want the white subcutaneous fat, too much of that. Uh, but You also explained how brown fat um, releases heat and something I've talked about on my podcast before is cold therapy and cold therapy is a great way to make sure that all that brown fat is turned on and make sure all it's burning really, really well and, and helping the mitochondria in there to, to really trigger on and, yes. and, and and help you there
1: with your fat burning. i talking yep, about- you're Absolutely fat- right. And I'm an advocate, cold therapy, Uh, That's one of the reasons I'm an advocate of it, um, because it does stimulate brown fat cells. And when brown fat cells are active, they pull in glucose very, very well. And if glucose can come down well, then insulin comes down well and things just keep going along much, much better. So, yeah,
0: talking about that and talking about fat burning, then that brings us along the lines of our uh, metabolic rate. And um, in our metabolic rate, a lot of people say, oh, well, I haven't got a very good metabolic rate. I don't do much exercise, anything like that. you know." Um, Or perhaps people think a a good metabolic rate is only for the healthy, only for the top marathon runners, things like that. Um, Explain to us a little bit about why metabolic rate is not necessarily always and has to always be linked to exercise. And there is other ways of getting a very good metabolic rate.
1: Yeah, so we can manipulate our metabolic rate just based on the food we're eating. There was a paper published, I think about two years ago, the first author is Ebeling, it's from David Ludwig's lab at Harvard here in the US. And they found that when someone transitioned, if they ate a high carbohydrate insulin spiking meal, their metabolic rate slowed from by about 100 calories per day. In contrast, if someone ate a low carbohydrate diet that was lowering their insulin or meal even, I mean, their metabolic rate increased by about 200 calories per, um, per day. And that, so that's a 300 calorie differential between those two states, which is pretty meaningful. You know, that's that's an hour on the stair stepper or, or some other sort of similar misery. And and you can kind of capitalize on that metabolic expenditure just by manipulating your diet a little bit. Now. Having said all that, and and while I do believe metabolic rate generally matters, it probably doesn't matter as much as most people think. And it's certainly not the excuse people should be relying on if they're gaining weight, as so commonly happens. They say, you know, in their 30s or so, I started to gain a lot of weight because my metabolic rate slowed down. That just doesn't appear to be the case. Um, uh, There was a study that anyone could look up called the Baltimore Longitudinal Study. And they followed a group of about 800 men for 10 years and at, at, uh, among all the metrics they used, they measured metabolic rate at, at year zero and found that over those 10 years, people who had a higher or lower metabolic rate at the outset of this study, um, in no way did it predict who gained the least or lost the most amount of weight or gained the most. It didn't really, it, it had no connection to weight changes, which you would expect. You would have expected the people with the lowest metabolic rate, if metabolic rate matters as much as we think, they should have gained the most. In contrast, those with the highest metabolic rate should have lost or gained the least, and it just didn't play out that way, um, it, which is very likely just a consequence of the differences in metabolic rate are so minor in the grand scheme of things, they just can't, can't account for the differences. However, in this same study, they identified um, the respiratory exchange ratio as a significant predictor of who gained or lost weight. And briefly, the respiratory exchange ratio is a method of determining the fuel that that person is predominantly relying on. And so not the metabolic rate, but rather what is fueling the metabolic rate, whatever the metabolic rate is, is this predominantly, it
0: could be a term uh, metabolic flexibility there.
1: Yeah. that's a, that's a good addition. Yeah. Yeah. So, so the RER gives you an idea of whether you're fat burning predominantly or sugar burning, as I like to say, and what the study found was that the higher the RER, which, which is a sign of higher glucose burning or higher reliance on glucose and less reliance on fat burning, those people were significantly more likely to gain more weight than the group that had the lower RER, which is reflective of a higher rate of fat burning. So I often will say because of that study, don't rely or don't care, don't worry about your metabolic rate. Worry about the fuel you're burning because you can't, you can't, I mean, you can maybe make some modest changes in metabolic rate. And I'm not saying it's totally irrelevant, but the evidence suggests more strongly that if you can put your body into a greater state of fat burning, that's going to be more predictive of you having long term success with weight control. And, and you can do that very, very well by just lowering insulin because insulin is what dictates the fuel the body is using. If insulin has been spiked, the body is in sugar burning mode. And if insulin is staying elevated for a long period of time, as it is in most people that are eating diets, um, that rely on carbohydrates and they're eating every two to three times a day, their insulin is elevated all the time. They're constantly stuck in sugar burning mode in contrast let lower, let insulin come down and then the body will go into a greater state of fat burning. And then you can be more confident of long-term weight control.
0: That's brilliant. So bringing it into a everyday real world situation, then is a lower carbohydrate nutrition, the way to go. Is that the way that we can become more insulin sensitive? And is it the way that we can really get into metabolic flexibility?
1: Yeah, right. So, Matthew, you bring up some wonderful points here. You've mentioned before, you've talked about nutrient density, right? And that is something I agree with wholeheartedly. What is so important about that concept of making sure you're really maximizing the, the value of the food you're eating, all the more reason to put carbohydrates in their place, or which is which is why I kind of state for me, a smart diet, the first pillar is control carbohydrates eat much, much less refined starches and sugars, because if you're looking for nutrient density or focusing on nutrition that is really necessary for the body as your first priority, there are such things as essential fats that people must eat to be healthy. There are such things as essential amino acids, these proteins that people must eat to be healthy. There is no such thing as an essential carbohydrate. Now, nothing, zero, there's nothing essential about that dietary carbohydrate. Now, I'm certainly not saying or suggesting or advising people not eat them. I'm not saying that at all. I am saying, let that be a check to our behavior collectively where we have been told and trained to rely so heavily on carbohydrates. Why would we want to rely on the one macronutrient that is both not essential to human health, but it's also the one that spikes insulin the most? It's, it's, it, it defies logic. And so I, I challenge that, that dogmatic view of, of human nutrition. That certainly predominates the, the world view right now, which is that we need to be eating high carbohydrate diets and we need to be eating six little meals per day. I think that is terrible advice. So um, I believe the best way to, to fix that is control carbohydrates, prioritize protein, make sure you're getting the right proteins and don't fear fat. Um, these ancestral fats from animals and fruits were built to eat them and we ought to eat them. They're necessary and they happen to have little to no effect on insulin. So
0: you're saying that don't fear fat, you mean saturated fat, because there is things I've talked about before, things like polyunsaturated fat. There's good polyunsaturated fats, there's bad polyunsaturated fats, whichever way you want to look at it like that. And polyunsaturated fats, unfortunately, are found a lot in the processed food that we eat. Uh, omega-6, people may know of omega-6 or, or uh, scientific term linoleic acid. How does that affect insulin within the body? And how does that affect our ability to burn fat?
1: Yeah, yeah. Oh, these are some great, um, great items to bring up. Yeah. So uh, you're right. Um, I do believe ancestral fats, which are rich in saturated fats are healthy. We ought to eat them. I will defend that um, till the end of time. Um, I do think Pointing the finger at refined seed oils is the place to go when it comes to actually fearing fat. If you want to fear any fat, fear the fat that has now become the single most common source of fat calories in the human diet, which is soybean oil and other refined seed oils, which are high in the omega-6 linoleic acid. That's the fat you should fear for myriad reasons. Um, The least of which perhaps would be that that fat accumulates in our fat cells, constituting a significant amount of the fat in those fat cells, and it changes the way the fat cells behave and it forces the fat cells into hypertrophy, which we touched on earlier. In addition to doing numerous other harms, um, these linoleic acid accumulates in the walls of the mitochondria, compromising the electron transport system, that fundamental mechanism of producing molecules uh, for energy within the cell and and other, other variables too, appearing to be necessary for fatty liver disease, certain cancers, there is a great deal of evidence suggesting that while we have been waging war these past 50 years on saturated fat, it was only ever an innocent bystander that had nothing really to do with the problem. But in, in the process, we created the actual problem when it comes to fat. And that was what has become now our um, almost total, um, this ubiquitous fat around us, which is these refined seed oils like soybean oil. And people listening to this, although your audience is likely informed um, to the point of this wouldn't be surprising, but often people will hear me elaborate on this and they'll say, well, I don't eat soybean oil. It, it has a lot of clever names, including vegetable oil, which, which, is, uh, which is an absolute misnomer. It's not vegetables, it's, it's a refined seed oil. This has become, in the United States, and I'm sure it's the same across the world um, at this point, honest, uh, really, um, through Asia, Europe, I'm certain it's the same. Um, soybean oil has become the single most common source of fat in the diet because it is in virtually every processed food um, where, where the fat will be coming from soybean oil. And it is in the most seemingly benign places. Try to find a salad dressing without soybean oil. Try to find a cracker or a bread without some form of refined seed oil. It is everywhere, and which is why I say if uh, when it comes to food, which is in bags and boxes with a barcode, you need to be very careful. You need to you need to look at what you're getting because it very likely seed oil, soybean oil, or something similar is going to be right near the top.
0: Yeah, if you're looking into whole foods, like you say, things that aren't in a packet, things that uh, your grandma and your granddad would recognize, then they're the kind of produce you should be staring towards and not the things with an ingredients list on the back as long as a college essay, anything like that. Well said. So um, changing the subject a little bit, we are now in January. And uh, a lot of people starting new exercise regimes and starting to put out their New Year's resolutions, things like that. Something that uh, really bugs me and I see it all the time. And and I have actually heard you speak about it as well before. In fact, I've heard you have a a great analogy about this. See if uh, uh, we can get you to say it on our podcast (laughs) about um, people saying, all I need to do is eat less and exercise more.
1: Yeah, I do. You knew it, Matthew. You're, 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 this is a slow pitch to me. I'm going to knock it out of the park. So yes, I, I without a doubt, without a doubt, that is the dogmatic advice that is, has been forced down our throats, shoved into our brains for decades. If you want to control cardiometabolic health, whether it's heart disease um, diabetes, whatever it is, the conventional clinical advice from these brilliant people with wonderful degrees, they will say, eat less, exercise more but there's just there's a big problem to that and and hence my analogy so imagine if if we had all been invited to the to a buffet a grand buffet and the world's most famous chefs would be preparing the most delicious foods we can imagine and the host of this grand buffet encourages us to come hungry come hungry what would we do to ensure we went to that grand buffet as hungry as possible the consensus almost always will revolve around two pieces of advice. It will be, I would eat a little less in that maybe the day or so before, or days before the event. And I would be exercising a little harder in the days before the event. And indeed, you would come to that grand buffet much hungrier than you would otherwise have come by following those two pieces of advice, by eating less and exercising more. And that therein lies the problem, there's the rub. eat less, exercise more, is a perfect recipe to promote hunger. And in our environment of ready access to foods, hunger always wins. It can only be held at bay for so long. And so the person who's attempting to lose weight by following that asinine advice of eating less, exercise more, they will have short-term success, but hunger always wins and and it's it's practically a guarantee they will they will they will stumble and fall eventually
0: it's why you see all these people starting off on things like a weight watchers program where they say limit your calories here limit your calories there yep. and they do great they get the badge for the best most weight loss in the first four weeks or whatever but then inevitably the weight goes back on because like you say hunger always wins in the end uh, now, something I'd love to touch on with you is protein. Okay, you say prioritize your protein, and obviously, I promote the nutrient density, and protein with nutrient density tends to be of animal produce. Um, yes is the protein in animal produce then a lot more nutrient dense and a lot more bioavailable than plant protein? Because everything you see around nowadays on the shelves there is vegan this, vegan that, this is plant yeah. protein. You need this plant protein, get this plant protein. And I'm here shouting, you need animal protein, not plant protein. Help me out here.
1: <laughs> yeah, or well, Matthew, I join you in that chorus of, of, of ignored voices it is, a, it is a dangerous trend, and, and I can only, I, I hate to say this kind of thing because it's so unscientific, um, but, but I can only suspect there are ulterior motives um, with this uh, agenda, for lack of a better word. Um, uh, and I'm, I, I wouldn't attempt to defend that, so anyone can accuse me of getting out of my lane here as a scientist, and I, I, would, I would accept that accusation. But there's no reason no reason whatsoever for humans to be attempting to get protein from plants. It is a fool's errand. By every objective measurement, animal protein beats plant protein. By every metric that matters, it has a better amino acid profile. We digest it better. It's more anabolic. It gives us, and to your point, beyond the amino acids and the protein absorption, it simply contains all the other nutrients that you literally need for life. In nature, fat comes with protein. Humans can live a carnivore diet and and, and live and thrive. Um, Humans cannot live a purely plant-based diet. It is impossible. And I do mean that. A person will appear to thrive for a time simply because they've stopped eating the typical Western diet, which is always a good thing, but the nutritional deficiencies will always catch up in the end, they I, they will develop deficiencies in iron because you can't get enough iron from plants, unlike getting it from any ruminant sources like beef, you would get all you need. You can't get enough vitamin B12 from, in fact, you can't get any from plant sources, so you'll develop a different kind of anemia called pernicious anemia, which can even be trans um, transferred from the mother to the baby. And so mom's adherence to a vegan diet starts to, the baby starts to suffer because of the lack of vitamin B12. So it becomes this generational curse as a human is attempting to defy the realities of human um, evolution and nutrition or human physiology. And you would also, you can't get enough um, omega-3 fats, EPA and DHA, you cannot get them from plant sources unless the brain starts to suffer because of its reliance on those um, essential omega-3 fats. So the person who is flirting with attempting to get all their nutrients from plants um, is naive or, um, or I, I say this, uh, they are privileged because maybe they are informed enough to know they're deficient in these nutrients, and then they can afford the high quality supplements that would be absolutely essential to make up for those nutrient deficiencies. So I say, uh, to make it polite, it's, it's bonkers to try to get protein from plants. It is unnatural, and I don't mean that in a sort of hippie sense, our ancestors would have never attempted to get protein from plants. It is foolish to think that was the, that would have been the case. And anyone who is wanting to get protein, I would say get it from animals. It's the best sources. And in animal fat, that protein comes or in animal sources, the protein comes with fat and that's how it's supposed to come. Protein with fat is digested better than the protein alone. So don't just take a scoop of whey protein, two scoops and drink it. No, get it with fat somehow or another. You digest it better. The bile acids facilitate the digestion of the protein and it is more anabolic. It is demonstrably more anabolic. Human studies have shown that the actual growth of the muscle is significantly higher when fat is consumed with protein rather than protein alone.
0: Yeah, that's great. It's brilliant to hear somebody talking about that kind of subject with the same passion as me. Yeah, well, it's <laughs> everywhere though, isn't it, Matthew? I <laughs> walked right, through the
1: supermarkets right. and it's just pallets, it's piles of these organic plant-based proteins. But also, this is maybe a little cynical, but having, I, I actually worked to create a low-carb meal replacement shake. I will only say this, anyone who wants to learn more about it, go to gethealthhlth.com. But we debated- Um, one of the other co-owners said, well, let's let's look at pea protein because it's so cheap. It is so cheap. If I'd wanted to just make much more money, I would have had these terrible plant proteins in my low carb meal replacement shake because I would have saved money and I could virtue signal to potential consumers and put a little bragging badge on my bag and say plant-based proteins, which we've just been trained to look at as, as if it's something good but it's it's laughable and and we we're, we're just we're playing into this um lunacy by by continuing to support this it is it is bonkers to be getting your protein from plants and, and that and and that's the end of it exclamation mark lest <laughs> lest i continue to talk about it for 10 more minutes
0: yeah that's absolutely brilliant i mean i won't I'll say that I'll never jump into any camp like carnivore or keto or anything. I just promote the nutrient density and you can get certain things from your plants, like your magnesium, potassium, folates, things like that you can get them from spinach, you know, good source of a plant there. Um, But if you're looking for protein and you're looking for fats and you're looking for a lower carb style with plenty of nutrient density, then animal produce is by far, by far the way to go. And as you say, yep. as you say, we're all just in this marketing scheme by all of these big companies who are wanting to spend less and less producing these things and pushing it out there in big fancy packaging. What you've got to realize is they're just trying to make their margins bigger. That's all they're doing. They're not thinking about you on the other end. And Well uh, said. Yeah, thank you very much. (laughs) Amen. I think that's a great place to end it there, Ben. I thank you very much for your time today. What I really want you to tell us is where we can follow you, where all my listeners can join in with all the great things you're doing. And uh, can we follow you on Instagram, Facebook? Have you got a website, things like that?
1: Yep, yep. Uh, Matthew, thanks again for the invitation. This was a really fun conversation. Uh, Thanks for letting me get animated there for a bit. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm moderately active on social media. Um, It's never personal stuff. It's not pictures of me doing anything. It's not pictures of my family. It's just me um, sharing what I believe is relevant uh, scientific insight into human metabolism. I am increasingly the most active on Instagram, and people can find me there at Ben Bickman, PhD. No C in Bickman, just Ben Bickman, PhD. Um, I I used to be more active on Twitter, but Twitter is just becoming a little too hostile of a place um, uh, for a guy like me. So uh, Instagram is really where I'm most active. Also, I mentioned this other venture I'm involved with, uh, uh, Health Code, HLTH, and people can find new blog posts that I make about human metabolism at gethealth.com. And again, health is HLTH, just gethealth.com. And and please actually follow that on Instagram, at gethealth, to get the updates when I make the blog posts. And then my book, um, Why We Get Sick is available for sale everywhere books are sold, however is most convenient uh, to get them. And it really is sort of my thesis. All these things we spoke about today, I just go into in much greater detail in length in the book. But if this was compelling or provocative, then, then that would be a, probably a book you'd enjoy. Matthew, yeah, thanks I, I, again.
0: No problem at all. I'd encourage everybody to go out there and get the book. If you really like listening to this podcast today, then Ben dives a lot deeper in his book and hopefully a lot of this then will make sense. But like like he says, go follow him on Instagram because he, I like his little videos. He puts up there every yeah. day. Great. Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Thank you very much, Ben. My pleasure. Thanks again, brother. See ya. What
0: an amazing chat with Dr. Ben that was. I like the way he's an out-and-out scientist. I always love to follow his work because it's all based on science and it's not based on epidemiological studies or somebody's particular belief. And epidemiological studies are just basically glorified questionnaires anyway. If a particular study is not blinded or randomly controlled, then it is inevitably always influenced by the beliefs of the money behind the study. So this is why Ben just follows the science and he talks about the real science, tried and tested. It's indisputable. That's why I like to follow him. And his book is great, Why We Get Sick. And his Instagram is full of content. So do yourself a favour and get up to date with all the nutrition science you will ever need. It's the real science. Now, I just want to thank everyone for taking up the free consultation offer on our website. I can only run this until the 31st of this month, which is January. So be quick if you still want a chat to refine your nutrition or just to start afresh. Start a brand new nutrition plan. However, failing that, I hope you are liking all the information I'm putting out there. And I hope you're beginning to manage your own nutrition for yourself. Better nutrition for yourself. Now, if you like this podcast, leave us a rating and a review so others can find it and others can enjoy listening. I hope you enjoy listening. Thank you for listening. Stay well, stay happy, stay safe, and I'll see you next time.